So Lord, open our ears. I know it's, it's late in the day and some of us have been working all day and up early. And Lord, I pray that help us be attentive in every way and teachable in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this section of Isaiah that's starting in chapter 40 that goes through chapter 66, that there's certain emphasis that we have seen over and over again. Remember that God is calling his people to turn away from idol worship. And so he's been saying to them that I am the creator. There is none other. Matter of fact, we ended at verse 21 of chapter 45 with the Lord saying, there is no other God beside me, a just God and a savior. There is none beside me. And he's the one that has created the heavens and the earth. I really appreciate uh, that little lesson lesson that we got from Travis during worship, that that's the nearest star. How many days it would take, you know, to travel there if we're in a Apollo space, you know, uh, rocket that was, you know, took the, the astronauts to the moon. But that's the nearest star. And, and as you look at the heavens, isn't it incredible? Even as David out there in the wilderness, he would say, oh, the heavens declare your glory, O Lord. And when I consider the heavens and the handy, uh, you know, the, the hands of your works, what is man that you're mindful of him? And that really is incredible because the neat thing about summertime is many of you, I'm sure, went camping uh, up in the mountains or you're outside at night and you look at the stars and especially when you can see the Milky Way galaxy and we live in a part of the country when it isn't smoky but we can get outside in the rural areas and we can see the sky so clear in, in the stars and isn't it amazing and to think that the Lord created all of that. Matter of fact, when, when Travis was speaking about that, I was looking at Genesis chapter 1 in, in verse 16, I believe, 16 or 17, that he only says five words about the stars, that he created the stars also. That's it. He doesn't go into details. He doesn't, you know, talk about the size of the stars. He just created the stars also. And you see the number of stars that are out there, you can't even count it as numbers that we can't comprehend. And the galaxies and the solar systems in the billions and billions of, of them out there. And when you look at it all, what is man that you're mindful of him? That God would create you and me to be the crowning jewel of his creation. And then to send his son to die for you and for me. It's absolutely incredible. And what the Lord is saying with a broken heart and, and, and a desire for them to, to hear his heart, that I'm the creator and there is no other God. And he's been saying that over and over again, even as we saw in verse 21. He said in, in chapter 43 that I am the Lord and, and there is no other God. Um, and understand that I am he. And beside me, there's no savior. And I have declared and saved and I have proclaimed. So we see that, that he is saying that I am the Lord, I'm the creator, and yet you are turning to those things that are created. You take a piece of wood, you cut it in half with one half that you carve an image out of and you prop it up and you end up worshiping it. And then with the other half, you throw it in the fire and it warms you and you cook with it. It doesn't make sense. So as he's claiming who he is, I'm the creator, there is no other God, and I am also the one that speaks of things not yet that have come to pass. I'm the one that can predict the future. Those false gods, those images that you're worshiping cannot do that. 
And of course, we're going to see that the Lord's going to continue to proclaim that as we go into chapter 46. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But those idols are worthless. They're no help to you. They're a burden to you. And I created you for my glory. And he says that you are mine. And you are precious to me. And I have loved you. And as I mentioned, that it's not just a message that was to them 2,700 years ago. Because as I read this, and I've read Isaiah, the book, several times. But what has really been jumping out at me is the things that, that they were dealing with. You know, the, the Isaiah and Jeremiah and them are very similar to the things that we see going on in our culture today. There have been uh, pastors that have told me, oh, why do you go through the Old Testament? It's not very relevant. This is very relevant. Because what do we hear today? What is being taught to our children? That there's no creator. He didn't create you. And, And even as we have seen that the Lord is saying, you're questioning the creator. You, you didn't make me this way. You know, you don't have no understanding or any of that. And we hear those same things today. That God made a mistake in creating me. And we have all these things that question the creator, but then turn to the creation, even as Paul would write, that takes place in Romans chapter 1. When we get done with 1 John in a few weeks, we're going to go into the book of Romans. An incredible book. So I hope you can join us with that study. But I created you for my glory for my purposes. You see, he didn't create us so that we can just live for ourselves, but we are created to worship him and, and to live for him. And he desires to do such wonderful things in our lives if we just believe that. And that's what we're going to see, the cry of the Lord here. He says, I, I want to bless you. I've redeemed you. You're precious to me. And those are words that are speaking to you and to me. Sometimes we think, Lord, do you see me? Do you know me? He says, I know your name. I know all the stars, but I know you. I know the stars by name, and I know you specifically. And I sent my son to die for you. And I've come to redeem you, and I have a plan for you. And that's such a wonderful truth that we can hang on to. And I didn't create you to give glory to those idols, because I will not share my glory with any of those idols And so the Lord's given some very important things that he's telling us. Let's continue. Again, verse 22 of of chapter 45. Look to me and be saved. He says, look to me. He doesn't say, look to Confucius. Look to Buddha. Look to Muhammad. Look to some spiritual guru. Look to yourself. Look to a church. Because none of those things will save you. He says, look to me. And as he has said that, as he continues to say that, that all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And I have sworn by myself that the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. And in verse 25, in the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So what we're seeing here is salvation as we see comes through him. Look to me and be saved. He has said just as he said in verse 21, I am a just God and a savior. There is only one savior. And that is Jesus Christ. 
that he came to this world. And, and in these verses that we end with, there's so much that is there. And, and notice that he says in verse 23 that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. Does that remind you of anything? Of course it does. It reminds you of Philippians chapter 2. That we know that Paul would write when he's talking about how Jesus came and humbled himself, made himself with no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, as every knee shall bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here Paul is saying that every tongue shall confess, every knee is going to bow to Jesus Christ. Now it's not talking about universal salvation, but it is talking about that you and I as we have humbled ourselves and as we have been obedient to the will of God and believing in him, that Jesus Christ came and died for our sins and he was put into a grave and he rose again and he's at the right hand of the Father. And we have come in faith and humbly we have bowed our knee to him and we have confessed with our tongues and with our hearts that Jesus, that you are Lord, amen, that you are my Savior, so we have that salvation that uh, we have the promise that he is the one that has saved us. And we know we have forgiveness of sin. We have relationship with the father. And when it says that every knee shall bow, there is that time that will come that Revelation chapter uh, 20 speaks about that will be the great white throne judgment when the unrighteous dead called the second resurrection will stand before the great white throne judgment and they will be forced to, those are unbelievers who will stand there and not really be judged. They're going to be sentenced. They're going to be judged according to their works. How many people have you heard that you know and care for and love very much? that say, when I stand before God, that I'm going to be okay because I'm a good person. It's not going to work. We're not going to be able to stand before God in our own righteousness because we're going to see later on that Isaiah declares that all of our righteousness are as filthy rags before the Lord. We need to come humbly and surrender our lives to him to be born again by the Spirit of God. And those who have rejected Jesus Christ, that they will be sentenced to outer darkness and they will be forced to at that time to bow the knee to him and confess that he truly is Lord. Sometimes you'll hear somebody will say, when I stand before God, then I'm going to tell him a few things. You see, that's not going to take place. So we want to make sure that people understand that it is our God that we believe in and Jesus Christ, our Lord, has provided salvation, not through anyone else. And that we are going to be ones that will not be ashamed. Will you always remember that? Listen. He said in verse 17 of the chapter, remember, that those who believe in him, you're not going to be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. Oh, the world may try to come along and, and disgrace you. The world hates you, makes fun of you. But when you stand before God, you're not going to be ashamed. 
And here he says, those who have rejected him, despise him, they will be ashamed. So Isaiah, even though he's given the tender heart of the Lord to us and his love is expressed through these words, also truth is given as well. And the Lord and all the descendants, verse 25 of Israel, shall be justified and show glory. We know that it's that time Isaiah is speaking about that the eyes of uh, the nation of Israel, the Jews are going to be opened up right before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And, and they're going to realize that Jesus is our Mashiach. We know Zechariah talks about it. And even Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 11. He says, in that day, all of Israel shall be saved. So the future time when they will recognize that Jesus is the one that is uh, truly Lord. And in that time, uh, they shall be the descendants of Israel justified and show glory. Chapter 46, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, and their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaded, a burden to the, the weary beast. We know that as we start chapter 46, Bel and Nebo were names of two false gods that were Babylonian gods. And apparently, the God's people were worshiping those false gods. Um, and so they would end up going into captivity by the Babylonians. But Bel, Nebo, um, those names maybe sound a little familiar with you because the leaders and, and the rulers of Babylon, when you read the Old Testament, would take on those Babylonian names uh, of gods because they saw themselves as God. Bel, Belshazzar, of course, king of of Babylon, the last king that uh, ended up being killed uh, that night that Cyrus and the Medes and the Persians came in and took over Babylon. We read about that in Daniel chapter 5. So you have uh, Bel, Belshazzar, Nebo, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Who's the one that came in um, and took the captives away from Jerusalem and then would finally have uh, Jerusalem and Solomon's temple destroyed in 586 BC. We read about Nebuchadnezzar quite extensively in the book of Daniel as well. And what they would do is Babylon would have these festivals and they would put the idols on the carts and the cattle and the beasts would have to pull them and they would be burdened by them. The, the, the Lord here is saying it's a burden to the weary beast. These, these heavy pieces of wood and stone that you put on the carts, it doesn't make sense. You're not believing in the living God, but you're believing in a dead God. In an idol that you have to cart around, that you have to prop up, that is no help to you, that's a heavy burden to you. Jesus on that hillside in Galilee would cry out to the people, you come to me. Come to me, those of you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those, those Babylonian idols, they're a heavy burden. But come to me and learn of me, and you'll find rest for your soul. And know that my yoke is easy my burden is light. And maybe you're here tonight and you feel very burdened. And maybe you're tired and you've been laboring, you've been trying your best, but it seems like 
that things aren't quite right in your heart and in your soul and you're struggling and, and things are heavy, the things that you give priority to and spend so much time uh, giving attention to and hoping in. And the Lord is saying, come to me. If you labor and are weary and heavy laden and yoke yourself with me and know that my burden is light. The world's burden is heavy, isn't it? And being a Christian and living for Jesus is not burdensome. And when we really make that our own and say, Lord, I understand this, that if I follow after the world and I prioritize the things of the world and I have any idols that are in my life, anything that's taken priority over you, anything that I'm turning to in that hour really of need and hope and giving my attention to what motivates me, Oh, Lord, those things can end up being a heavy burden. Well, there's nothing wrong with, with having things, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, working hard and, and having a business and all those things. But is the Lord the priority in every area of your life? And as he is, oh, just yoke yourself with him and travel with him. And allow him to lead you and guide you and know that his burden is light. The burden that the world puts on us is heavy, isn't it? The burden that other people can put on us can be very, very heavy. So that invitation given, and then in verse 2 as we continue in the chapter 46, they stooped, they bowed down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. So those false gods and, and idols didn't help Babylon when they fell to the Medes and Persians. They didn't help the children of Israel when they went into captivity. They're completely worthless. In verse 3, listen to me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. And I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. This is good news. In contrast, the Lord says, I will carry you. I've birthed you, and I will carry you as a nation and as a people. And I want you to always remember that you're not a burden to the Lord, but you're a delight to him. Sometimes I think, Lord, you must be tired of me coming, you know, and just calling out to you. And my struggles and my shortcomings and my failings. And I'm not what I could be and I'm not what I should be. I fret. I become anxious. I worry about things. Uh, Lord, I can stray off very easily. I, I must be a burden. And he says, no, I want you to come. And even as we sing that, that hymn that we're so familiar with, Lord, every hour I need you. Sometimes it's every minute I need you. And every hour, every day. And he never gets tired of us depending on him and calling out to him. Listen, never feel like you're a burden to the Lord. He says, you're not. And he says, I will carry you. And I like that he says, I will carry you in your, your old age. And that makes me feel good. And you might remember that Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, that he will feed his flock like a shepherd. And he will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And as we continue here, 
In verse 5, to whom will you liken me and, and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and they weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder and they carry it and set it in place. And, and it stands from its place. It shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. There, there is nothing or no one else that is like our God. So here they were putting all this time, you know, getting gold and silver and hiring a goldsmith, the silversmith, to, to fashion this, this, you know, image that is completely worthless. Not a good investment. You know, it pauses, causes me to pause and to think, what do I really prioritize and put all my effort in? And again, I understand that we have jobs, we have responsibilities, we have children that we're raising, we, we have family we take care of. There are things that we do, but really, how much time and effort do we put into things knowing that they're going to vanish and they're going to go away? And what I want to remind us again is that Jesus said, you know, don't store up your treasures here on earth. Will, you know, rust come in and, and or moths come in and eat and rust destroys and where thieves break in. But make sure that you're prioritizing storing up your treasures here in heaven. There's nothing wrong with having things again. Be a good steward, though, of what God has given to you. And make sure for every single one of us, whether we have little or we have much, that our priority is investing in him. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Listen, let me tell you this. You invest in the kingdom of God and the returns are out of this world. They really are. They are eternal. And we get to invest in something that's going to last forever. And to keep in mind that the things of this world is going to pass away. Oh, we want to, to pass things on to our children, to our grandchildren. Even Proverbs says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children and children's children. But to keep in mind that the priority is investing in the kingdom of God. You who pray, you who serve, you who support financially, that everything that you're doing, it goes to your spiritual account. Even as you remember Paul in the book of Philippians, he would thank the Philippian believers. He says that, thank you for your support, that I can do the ministry. And the ministry that is done, that because of your support, what happens is it's given to your account. And it's like every single one of us has this eternal account. And I pray that we're investing in it and that we're storing up our treasures in heaven. And one day we will stand before the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ and be rewarded for what we have done for Christ in this world, knowing again that everything else will pass away. So invest in the kingdom of God. I pray that we're excited to do that and, and, and to know that, that he's going to reward us for it. And they were creating a God out of their own imagination, shaping and molding. People do that today. They'll, you know, make up a God out of their own imagination. Well, I think God is this way. I think God is that. Has he ever had that conversation with somebody? And I'm so thankful that we can take them to the word of God. And we can say, this is God revealed to us through his word. Let me tell you about him. 
But as we continue in verse 8, remember this and show yourselves, men. Call to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasures. Once again, we see that the Lord is saying that I know, interesting, he says, I know the end from the beginning. The only true God that, you know, declares the end from the beginning, uh, he dares to predict the future. Those Babylonian gods, they can't do that. And we know that this book deals a lot with prophecy, doesn't it? Matter of fact, in the Old Testament here, that there's 1,239 predictions that are made in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's 6,641 verses out of 23,210 verses that deal with prophecy, with, with God predicting the future. And 28.5% of the Old Testament deals with prophecy. That's quite a bit. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, there are 578 predictions that are given in the New Testament. And there's 1,711 verses out of... 7,914 verses that deal with prophecy. Nearly 22% of the New Testament is prophetic. So 27% of the whole Bible deals with prophecy. So as you go through the whole counsel of God's word, you're going to be dealing with prophecy. Now, some of these prophecies, many of it, of those prophecies, particularly the Old Testament, we have seen going through the book of Isaiah. And some of them were near fulfillments, fulfilled to the very letter, letter, some of them are future fulfillments. But here's the interesting thing, that there are 333 prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus, 109 of them fulfilled in his first coming. There's still 224 prophecies to be fulfilled in his second coming. Now, as we look at those prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the birth and the life and ministry and the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if we know that every one of those prophecies will fulfill to the letter, 109 of them fulfilled concerning his first coming, we can be confident that those over 200 prophecies concerning his second coming are going to be fulfilled. There are 300 references to the Lord's coming and 260 chapters of the New Testament, one out of every 30 verses. 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament deals with the, or mentions, that is, the Lord's coming. The only four books that don't, Galatians, Philemon, which is a personal letter, and then 2nd and 3rd John. We're going through 1st John, and of course, 1st John deals with it, uh, the coming of the Lord in his uh, first epistle to the church. There's 1,527 Old Testament passages that refer to the second coming. And every time the Bible mentions the first coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming is mentioned eight times. Over 50 times in the scriptures, we're exhorted to be ready for the Lord's return. Now, how can we go through scripture, particularly as we go through it book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and ignore prophecy? And yet today there are ministries and churches that say it's not important to know prophecy. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to deal with it. 
And I see that nearly, you know, over a quarter, nearly 30% of this book deals with prophecy. And I know that as God declares it, he knows the end from the beginning. I find that interesting. Not the beginning to the end, but the end from the beginning. And every dot and tittle is going to be fulfilled. And that brings me great comfort because I know that the Lord is coming back. And I know that we have a wonderful future and we're going to rule and reign with him. And I know that, that the things that are spoken of in the scriptures, that I see these things beginning to come to pass, that I can look up and rejoice for your redemption draws near is what Jesus says. And that he's going to come for his church. We don't know the day or the hour, but as Hebrews says, the one who shall come will come and he will tarry no longer. He's going to come one day. He promised that he would. Jesus spoke of it. The scriptures declare it. And it could be at any time. There's no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for Jesus to come for his church and the rapture of the church. And I always want to put before you the whole counsel of God's word and that will include the coming of the Lord. Exhorted over 50 times to be watching, to be waiting, to be ready, to be sober, to be vigilant, to don't go to sleep in the days in which we're living in. You remember some of you that were here in our prophecy update that we do on New Year's Eve, and I'm already thinking about because, what, it's four months away or less than four months away that we'll be doing another prophecy update. But... We did Ezekiel 38 and 39 and how those nations are coming together and that confederation of nations that will come into uh, the mountains of Israel and this massive invasion in the last days. And, and so, you know, all these things that are taking place. And still, Syria is so much in the news today, not so much in our news, but here's an interesting piece of of, you know, update that's going on because a lot of people think in America that the war in Syria is pretty much over and we know that the Russians are entrenched in Syria, the Iranians are, Turkey is, and there's going to be an alliance of those three nations coming together that will come from the north, that is Syria, into Israel. And we've read about that in Ezekiel 38 and 39. But this came out on, on Monday, Labor Day. That President Trump late Monday warned Syria's Bashar al-Assad and his allies in the region not to attack rebels in the country's Idlib province. That's in the very northwest part, I believe, of Syria, warning that hundreds of thousands could be killed. Trump's tweet came shortly after Iran's foreign minister said that terrorists must be purged from Idlib. Uh, lib in the last opposition stronghold in the country. And then also we know that Damascus leaders are, are saying that the allies are preparing for an assault. So what is happening here is that Assad is planning this massive assault against the last stronghold of rebels. And Russia is believed that it's going to be behind that massive attack in that area of northwest Syria. They are doing naval exercises in the Mediterranean. They got everything ready to go. And, and President Trump is tweeting, saying, don't do that. Um, don't do that. The Russians and Iranians would be making a grave humanitarian mistake to take part in this potential human tragedy. Hundreds of thousands of people could be killed. Don't let that happen. That's what he tweeted, our president, just two days ago. 
You think it's over in Syria? It isn't over by a long shot. Now, we don't know if this is going to pan out the way that, that what is saying and being reported, but sources in Israel are saying that it very well could. It could be a massive Russian uh, offensive against the rebels there in Syria. Israel's talking about that they're going to strike Iranian targets clear into Iraq. It is heating up. And one day, as Ezekiel 39 says, they will come up with a plan and they will say that we're going to go into the mountains of Israel and attack Israel in this massive military force against Israel and God will defend Israel. And I see the pieces of the puzzle in place and, and, and the scenario coming together and I think, wow, Lord, it's really, you can read the Bible and read your newspaper and it's so incredible. But a lot of Christians don't understand. And a lot of Christians may not be interested so I pray for us here at Calvary Chapel that we be ready, that we be watching, that we be sober, that we be vigilant. We don't know what's going to turn out exactly in this latest campaign, but we do know that the scriptures will be fulfilled. And we know that Ezekiel 39 will be fulfilled. When it will be fulfilled, we don't know for sure. But it is in the latter days. It could happen before the Lord comes back. It can happen in the tribulation period. We don't know for sure. But I want to encourage you to go over that teaching that I did, two-part series at the beginning of the year and get caught up on all that stuff. It's just keep your eyes on the Lord, and that's what we're to do. My counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasures, calling a bird of prey from the east and a man who executes my counsel, verse 11, from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. God's purposes will come to pass. And listen to me, you stubborn hearted who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. God will free his people from Babylon and, and he will humble Babylon using Cyrus and the Medes and the Persians. But his purposes will come to pass even today. His purposes will come to pass. And again, that brings me comfort. Because I don't have to fret you know, about everything that I see going on in the world. Oh, I will pray about it. But I can say, Lord, in this time of grace, before the Lord comes back, I want to be a witness and a light to others. That's my priority. And I want to pray for our nation. Because this is so relevant to, to us our nation, our culture, to our church, and to us personally, to be that light and that truth to others and to be used for your glory, Lord. So, Father, we thank you for this chapter that we went through. And maybe we didn't get as far as we wanted, but, Lord, I thank you for these encouraging words and these truth that is declared that you are the creator, that you are the savior. There is none other. That we are created for your glory, and Father, I pray that we would invest in you and your kingdom and keep our eyes on you. And as we come to the communion table here tonight, Lord, as the elements are passed out, and as we'll take it together as a church, the elements, that, Lord, that it would be a time of worship. It would be a time of remembering that the creator 
who humbled himself and became a man, as Philippians 2 says, obedient to death, to death on the cross. What is man that you're mindful of him? Well, you proved your love by sending Jesus to go to the cross. And it was love for us that kept him on that cross, not the nails. He could have spoken and just come down from the cross. They mocked him and said, you know, you saved others yourself, you cannot save. He could have saved himself, but he didn't because he knew that we wouldn't have forgiveness of sin if he didn't die for our sins. Jesus went to the cross because he loves every single one of us. So, Lord, I pray that as we hold the communion elements, just marveling that he allowed his body to be broken and his blood shed for forgiveness of sin, it would never lose its impact with us. So great a salvation that we have. So great a love that was proven and demonstrated for us. I do want to pray if anyone who's here that the communion is for the believer. And if you're here, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. You've never come to him for forgiveness and salvation. He is the Savior of the world. There is none other who went to the cross and died for your sins. And he cried out, it is finished. I've done the work. I've paid the price. And he was put into a grave and he rose again. He conquered sin and death. He proved that he's the son of God. And he's at the right hand of the Father. He is your savior, your salvation. He is Lord. Just as Isaiah, the Lord says that I'm the one that saves. None other. Will you give your life to Jesus? He loves you. And the invitation is given to come. Put your faith and trust in him and surrender your life to him. Confessing that I need you, Jesus. I need to be forgiven. And I come to you, Jesus. You can pray that right now in your heart. And I believe you died for me on that cross. You died for me because you love me. Forgive me. And I believe you are alive. And I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for bringing me here tonight. Or just to be able to listen to this message. And Lord, I thank you for your love for me and going to the cross. And you're alive, I believe that. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my heart, my life. And I thank you for hearing my prayer and for this new beginning in Jesus' name. And if anybody did pray that prayer sincerely, you belong to the family of God. And you can take a communion and, and just, I pray that you would tell somebody, the prayer team at the end of the service, so they can pray for you and encourage you. But as the communion elements go out, I would ask that you just hang on to them and we'll partake of them together.